Did y'all know that the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers, but be diligent. Spudazzo, make every effort, make it your highest priority to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling, cutting straight the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. They upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The Apostle Paul teaching Timothy that the ministry of the Word of God is to be used with an instrument sanctified and consecrated to God, namely our mouths. And our mouths are supposed to not use uh, meaningless and empty chatter, but they're supposed to say the very things of God and shut down those things that are not of God, that are being passed off as things of God. And that means that our fingers need to stay in the Bible. Beloved, we're in Matthew chapter 9, the conclusion of Matthew chapter 9, introducing chapter 10 this morning. And we are studying the word of God regarding the offer of the kingdom that Jesus offered national Israel, its rejection, and Jesus' training of his disciples in light, in view of that inevitable rejection. We're going to need God, the Holy Spirit, as we mentioned with the children, to train us. We're going to need him to fill us with the word so that it's useful to him through us, so that our words and our works are sanctified, corresponding to the work of the Holy Spirit. In the scriptures, we know what the Holy Spirit's work looks like because we have lists. One of the great lists is Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the ninefold description of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to have our mouth and to have our heart and to express himself through us. And the result, as we studied recently on Wednesday night, the results of the filling of the Spirit involve what you say to one another and to God. Let's make sure that we are rightly adjusted to the Spirit of God. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is described in this age as the filling of the Holy Spirit. And this is something that is our constant responsibility. It is forfeited through personal sin. Let's take a moment for silent prayer if we need to confess any known sin to God. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate and rejoice today in your presence because of your goodness to us, because the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior, and his victory lap will continue forever and ever and ever because of what he accomplished for us at the cross and through the resurrection. Father, we have the life because we have the Son, and we know that your scriptures are given in the power of your Spirit so that we could live the life. We could walk by the Spirit. Strengthen us for that purpose today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36 describes the Lord Jesus. We briefly touched on it a couple weeks ago, but it's our launching pad into the great discourse of Matthew 10, the discipleship discourse, which is Jesus equipping and instructing his disciples in their particular mission of going throughout the, 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 the household of Israel, the Jewish people, the northern and southern kingdom, and the, those that are left, not the Samaritans now, just the Judeans in this case, um, the, the 
the remnant of the southern kingdom, I guess. But they're going to go throughout Israel and to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and preach the kingdom, preach the gospel of the kingdom. And it's really important as we start this to remember something. The Bible must be interpreted in the time in which it was written. Matthew is writing to a Christian Jewish readership, and Jesus is speaking to people who were being commanded to do something very different than what we're commanded to do. There are many things about what Jesus teaches in Matthew 10 that apply directly to us, and there are some things that do not apply to us, and it's because of the difference in mission. It's the difference in the times, the difference in the arrangement, and let me prove it to you. At the end of Matthew, Jesus tells the disciples to go to all the nations. Matthew 10, Jesus says, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, you're only offering the kingdom to Israel. And that difference alone accounts for what we're talking about. Jesus is offering the kingdom to Israel. It's being rejected, and yet the discipleship ministry continues because we are going to go to the whole world. So this is the part where Jesus is equipping his disciples for the ministry of the gospel of the kingdom, which is repent for the kingdom is at hand. We've said that Matthew can be broken down like this, um, and we're in this part, the first discourse on discipleship, where Jesus is teaching his disciples um, uh, by his example in chapters 8 and 9, and by his precept about what they're going to do following that example in chapter 10. One of the things that, that is different in the time in which we live versus when they lived was Jesus did miracles. And he had the power that said, the kingdom is present because I'm here. He was doing miracles that belong to the restoration of all things in the coming kingdom. The earth's curse on man and its destruction is done so he can, he can cause the lame to walk and cleanse the leper and, and heal the sick and give sight to the blind and even raise the dead. In the resurrection, you see, that the part of the kingdom is this resurrection ministry. And so Jesus is able to, to do these things in offering the kingdom. And as he does these things, the people want to hear from him. And he's then telling them that this is about God and you need to come to him. It's about a relationship with him. And the people, uh, tragically following their leadership, uh, have uh, not embraced their creator. They need to repent. They need to change their minds. And, and so we had these stories in Matthew 8 and 9 that lead up to this discourse of, of Matthew chapter 10 that if you look in your Bible, it may be printed in a lot of red letters. But in Matthew chapter 9, concluding that chapter, it says, seeing the people, that's Jesus, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Beloved, this is such a powerful passage. And you do need to read the Bible at the time it's written. And Jesus is setting them up to go only to Israel. And there is this gospel of the kingdom being offered that is going to be rejected. That is all part of the story. But listen to the language and the attitude of God. Listen to what we learn of our lives and our work as we launch into the question, what is it to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know what it means to be his disciple? As Paul described in Timothy, to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, a workman that needs not be ashamed. Do you know what it is to be a disciple? It's a lot of work. You have to give up a lot. To hear Jesus at the end of chapter 10, you have to give up everything. Lose your life for his sake and find it. 
or hang on to it and lose it. It's the agenda. It's the plan. It's the purpose God has for your life. If you don't have this label on yourself, you need to repent. I'm sorry. You don't need to repent for the kingdom is at hand. You need to change your thinking about what your life is for. Because just like the man who said, well, I mean, can I go bury my father first? And Jesus said, no, yeah, go let the dead bury their dead. There's nothing that needs to come between you and God's agenda for you. Nothing. No one. Nothing. No entertainment. No engagement. No personal relationship. Nothing needs to be more important than your relationship with God. And this is the attitude of the Savior, of the shepherd for the flock. He knows where the goods are. He knows. He knows where the best grass and the best water is, and he knows how to take us there. And that's what Matthew 10, in part, is going to do for us. It really wrecks our scale of values. It really changes us from being of this world and lets us be in it so that we can serve God in it and speak to it, but we won't be from it. The word is going to change us if we listen. And it starts with the lead up, with this ramp up to the discourse in 36 through 38 of chapter 9. Looking in some detail, I just have to show you, I don't translate everything in Matthew in this study because it would take like five years to walk exegetically through every verse. But, um, but he says here, now when, when Jesus saw the crowds... Your Bible might say the people, but it's the crowds of people, the multitudes. He's looking at them. And the point is that it's people. He saw these people. Jesus wasn't thinking, just for, for our church context and our time in which we live, he wasn't thinking, I wonder how we could get a, a, a big enough building to put all those people under. <laughs> that wasn't his agenda at all. He was making disciples of them. He was going to bring them to his father because that's the mission is for the son to reveal the father. And that's John 17. Do you know Jesus' mission? He said, I've done what you sent me to do. I'm going to read it real quick. When Jesus uh, tells the Lord, tells his heavenly father that he accomplished the mission. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, this hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son can glorify you. Remember reciprocation. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh so that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, did you hear that? You gave him to me and then I showed him you. You gave him me, that glorifies me because now I have disciples. Now I'm gonna glorify you by showing them to you. And now they have eternal life because that's to know you. And this is that back and forth between the father and the son. This is the attitude of the son. He said, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Oh, could we pray that prayer at the end of our lives? This is the end of his life, his earthly ministry. I accomplished the work that you sent me to do. Can you say that? Young people, you are in a world. That sounds like a movie trailer. You're in a world. You are about to be told that the only hope you have in life is to entertain yourself with various in enjoyable experiences. And that's all there is to life. Maybe you've already been bitten by that spider. But God is going to tell you that your life has eternal significance and the greatest fun or enjoyment of your life will be serving God step by step. You have an entire life in front of you, young people. You have what's left of your life, young at heart. It matters to God. And Jesus said at the end of his life, I've accomplished the work you sent me to do. Please, don't be a believer for years and then start talking about the criminal on the cross, the end of your life. Well, I still get in. Yeah, 
you get in and you wasted the greatest resource in all of world history. God, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Let these words sink in. The, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you for a purpose. You better figure out what that is. And it's not so that you feel special feelings. That's about you. And the more you and I turn in ourselves, the more empty we'll feel, the more worthless it'll be. It's really not about us. It's God glorifying himself through us. Jesus said, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is the mission. This is the ultimate mission that we reveal the Father, that we be about the Father's work. And this is what you can have in common, especially with the disciples in their delegation to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Can you look at people who are generally misguided, led astray, deceived by the prince of the power of the air, the prince of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2? Are you aware of the war that's going on and the veil that's on the hearts of the world, that the world has been deceived? When you see rank unbelief, when you, see, when you see tyranny and those who are clamoring for tyranny, throwing away the blood of the patriots that have given us this liberty, using the liberty to destroy ourselves, when you look at this world, do you at the same time you see a galling, nauseating disruption? Do you, see, do you have compassion for these people that are so consumed with lies that they are therefore self-destroyed? Do you, do you have this attitude of your Savior? He saw the crowds. He felt compassion for them. Now, I need to repent at times. I need to change my thinking about this, about compassion for the crowds. Do you know what the hoi polloi is? It's Greek. We say the hoi polloi, that, that's when people in Washington talk about, you know, those people in flyover country, the hoi polloi. The hoi polloi is Greek for the, the people. Because hoi is the, and polloi is people. That's not Pelosi, that's polloi. <laughs> hoi polloi, it's the people. Y'all, the people are the problem. They are the problem. And I don't mean because they eat beef and drive cars. That's not why we're the problem. But don't worry, that's, I guess that's going away. We eat bugs and walk. Those that are left, you know, is the goal. But the people, do we have this sense of these are deceived people that have no hope and no light in their darkness? Remember when you were little and it was time to wake up and you didn't want to wake up? Someone might turn the light on. I don't want the light on. That's how the world is. And you're walking around with the headlamp on. <laughs> hey, everybody. And they're all like, oh, that's how it is. And, and compassion is that they would open their eyes and see. And you're going to feel rejection from people that aren't going aren't to want that. But Jesus had it. For the, forgive them, Father. They, these same people that he's talking to or crucifying, they don't know what they're doing. The deacon, filled with the Spirit and capable of signs and wonders, Stephen, Acts chapter 7. His last words are, don't count this against them as they're stoning him to death. Same people. You killed him, now you're killing me. 
Don't count this against them. It's the attitude, this compassion for these people that are, that are killing. This is the lifeguard's compassion. What do they teach you in lifeguard training? That when someone's panicking, they have no idea what they're doing. They're completely ignorant of the fact that they're trying to drown you. And that's the greatest danger. One of the greatest dangers in trying to save someone in, in, a, in a drowning situation is that they, in panic, will, will wipe you out. And then you, get, you drown too. And so how do you carry them and how do you do this to save someone? You know, you need, it's a pretty big undertaking. But this is lifeguard stuff. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Now I have to tell you, you nerds that are like me that want to know, what is that group of squiggles right there that says he felt compassion in Greek? That's a splunk needs, needs it. Nisthane, splunk nisthane, it's, it's from the word splunk needs oh my. Everybody's happy about that. Splunk needs oh my now there are people in the room that'll tell you they know what that means believe it or not i have encouraged that that they would know that splunk known is a noun splunk needs oh my is a verb and we don't do either of those very well in english s-p-l-a-n-c-h-n-o-n is the noun splunk needs oh my n-i-z-o-m-a-i is the verb it's very simple stuff it's just another language it's not a big deal it's God's word, I mean, word for word. But what does this word mean? Did you know that splunknone, the noun, is intestines? It means guts. If you turn that into a passive verb, and it's always in the passive vo- voice in its form, that would be like to be gutted. But if you say to be gutted in English, this is like cleaning a deer, and that's not what this means. This means to have an orientation in your feelings. Because like your heart, there are various body parts that are concrete things that will describe immaterial parts of you. Like the heart is the big one in the Bible. Old and New Testaments isn't talking about this. It's talking about the inner core of your spiritual being, your, your soul uh, in, in the soul-spirit complex, the place that thinks and feels and, and, and does many things. The thoughts and intents of the heart. Don't say heart's feelings. It's not just feelings. Valentine's Day notwithstanding. All right. But this is not heart. This is guts. Why does that word mean felt compassion? Bowels of compassion. This is a thing in the New Testament. This is the way the Greek world thought and the way they talked about feeling compassion or pity or concern. Paul says this about the Philippians, that he longed for them with the splunk known of Jesus. I longed for you with the intestines of Jesus. Doesn't really say my, let's say affections, Pastor Dave. I long for you with the affections of Jesus. That we want an immaterial word when they're hearing a very visceral, literally visceral, physical word in Greek, because that's what they would do. The kidneys would be used this way, and so would the bowels or the, the intestines. Isn't that cool? But this is what the Lord Jesus did. He had compassion for them, and this is how they would describe. Now, the best I've got on why kidneys are a place of feeling, because when they hurt, that's bad feeling, and everybody can identify with kidney pain. I think this is similar with intestines. It's all good until it's not, and you can have really bad feelings because your GI tract is off, um, or things can go well, and everything's fine, and feel pretty good today because the GI tract is on, and so um, I think that this does mean feelings. He felt compassion for them. 
Now, why did he feel compassion for them is the question you want to ask. And that's why I put up the first line before I put the second line. Because you're supposed to know the reason why. Do you know why Jesus felt this desire, this compassion, this heartfelt concern, as we call it? That's your Savior. Sometimes they portray him as a tough guy. There's there's never been anyone tougher. For example, he had compassion for these crowds. He was a master of his own uh, inner character to the extent that those who would prophetically, as he knew, reject him, he has compassion for them. He had self-control in that sense. It's hard. It's hard to know that people hate you and you love them anyway. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. And why? Because they were... What were they? Where's my notes? They were schoolo. They were schoolo in the passive perfect, and it means they had been harassed or wearied. They had been wearied is really kind of what the verb is doing here. Your Bible might say, well, my Bible says, what, um, 936. They were, they were distressed. Distressed, that's a good one. They were wearied or distressed. Somebody had wearied them. They've been harassed. They've been a victim. A victim of whom? Well, ultimately the enemy who deceives the nations and hates our souls, and tells us, here, try this. Ooh, that's sweet, but it's rat poison. That's your enemy. He gives you what tastes good to you, and it kills you. And, and then he says, he blames God for it. And you and your heart say, well, things are going bad. It must be God's fault. That's the enemy of your soul, and the life that the world will lead you to live. But this word schoolo, to weary or to harass, they were wearied. They were harassed. They were victimized by the enemy. And then this word is um, really interesting, ripto, ripto. And that can mean to throw down, to put down, to set down, or I've translated it downcast. I thought, sure, when I flipped over to my New English translations, this 1611, they would have said downcast because that, that's what it means. They said scattered. And that could be the sense that the sheep, because we're talking about sheep, in a minute, that they're, sh- they're, they're, they're scattered. But I think that if you look at a lot of English translations, they'll bring out that this is inner. This is inner turmoil. They're wearied. They've been harassed. They've been brought low. And now they're downcast. They're down. And who is like that? Like sheep, not having, literally not having a poimain. Okay, this is one of our favorite words. I mean, we're Baptistic here. You know what a poimain is? I didn't say we're Baptists. Because that people get worried about that in the culture we live in with what flag you wave. We believe in baptizing believers. That's baptistic. Poimain is the word here that means uh, shepherd. But in Latin, they never said shepherd. You know what they said for this word in Latin for shepherd? They said pastor. They said pastor. Because that's all a pastor means. It just means a shepherd. It's very, very uh, um, complimentary to the flock, isn't it? That makes us sheep if we have a shepherd. But that's what they were like. They were like sheep without a shepherd. There's a, there's a vacuum of leadership at a minimum. Why don't these people have a shepherd? Because the Levites who had been entrusted under the legal system God gave them at Mount Sinai to be their shepherds were not. Because to be a shepherd under Yahweh, you have to be a Moses which means you get your orders from him and then you prostrate yourself before him and you live your life to please him and you get what you know from what he tells you. And that makes you 
a Moses-like shepherd. How do I know? He told me. Now, you can't be a prophet if you're not a prophet, but the Levites following after Moses could hear what Moses gave them from God. That would be the word of God. We begin in Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they could know God and seek to please and serve him. They could adopt his attitude, his perspective, his even compassion. But they didn't. They disregarded the spirit of what Moses wrote, these Levites and leaders in Paul's day, I mean, Jesus' day. They disregarded what God had given them, and they made themselves uh, absolutely no avail as shepherds. They weren't shepherds anymore. They were fence builders who didn't have compassion for the flock, and they didn't spare the flock, and they weren't serving God. They were serving their father, as Jesus says in John 8, the devil. And they did it by pointing to the Bible. This is really the most bizarre thing, perhaps in world history. Besides Christians that won't walk by the Spirit, this is another really weird one. They had the Bible, they had the written scrolls of God's Word, and somehow they didn't understand it when they read it. There's a veil over their hearts when Moses is read. And they weren't following Moses, though they claimed to be. And again, that's, you could read about uh, Jesus' announcement of the, rich crowd, the, the religious crowd in, in John 8. But this is why these people are sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for them because the people are wearied, downcast, like sheep not having a shepherd. This is an election year. The rulers are in the Bible often compared with shepherds. David was taken from the flock to shepherd my people Israel, God says, several places in the scriptures. The shepherd, the king is a shepherd. Doesn't mean pastors are kings. But it does, and we don't lord it over the flock allotted to us in 1 Peter 5. But but the king is a shepherd. He's supposed to shepherd God's people. The rulers are supposed to provide this oversight, this care, this provision, this direction. Provide what? Bread and circuses? No, they're supposed to provide freedom, the environment in which we can be protected from invasion within and without and all those things so that we can, we can plant our crops and harvest them and not have someone steal. But these are like sheep not having a shepherd. And I think that you and I could adopt this attitude. We could have felt this way about the United States, the people of our country in the 1940s or the 1950s or the 1960s, especially about the 1960s and 1970s and all the way to today. We can think the same way about the people that we minister to. It's an application. It's not what he's talking about, but it is an application of what he's talking about. Think about the deception that goes out in this world. And as soon as you get with other believers, you stop talking about sports scores or the weather. And you start talking about what's going on around you. I mean, heaven forbid we bring out what we're studying in the Bible. I mean, that'll eventually get there when, when the holy people show up and start talking about that. But we'll just start talking about the world and current events and how bad things are. Remember, the problem you've got is the attitudes of people aggregated together. The whole people, they're all buying the chicken little lie. They're all buying this thing that the earth is, is dying. And not because God is involved, but because we somehow are, are killing it. And it's really a globalist effort to consolidate power. I'm sorry, that's all it is. That's all it is. But, but the people are buying into bad ideas, just for one example. There are lots of bad ideas people are swallowing. And the big one is in, John, in Genesis 3 that God is not good and loving. So the people that think that way will be the people that if, if we were in the Bolshevik Revolution, they would turn you in for a loaf of bread as Christians. 
in the coming Bolshevik revolution, if that's what, what God allows to happen here, they will be the people that will turn you in for a loaf of bread. These people have Bibles and they read them. They believe them. Maybe you'll face some persecution. But like Jesus who faced the same persecution, will you have the compassion that Christ had for them? Because they're sheep without a shepherd. Now, what are you going to do? Well, you can't be Jesus, but Jesus can. You can point them to him. Beloved people, y'all need a shepherd. That's what they say today. Y'all need Jesus. You need a shepherd. And we have one. And that's what we're doing. We're introducing people to the shepherd. So I'm just saying this ramp up to the discipleship discourse, really powerful for your life. If you think about it, why are they down? Why are the people down? Well, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They don't know where the food is or or the good water. Then he said to his disciples, because of the circumstance that he saw, think about it. Now, Jesus knows all that can be known. He's God in the flesh, but he's looking at this, and he looks at the disciples, and he said, on the one hand, literally, that's what's happening here, men and death. These two go together. I've got to say this. Some of you, listen, some of y'all are going to get this from me saying it like I did when I was a kid in church, and others are not going to understand this ever, and that's fine. Let's let God sort that out. But when you have men, M-E-N, and de in a sentence in Greek, it's setting up a comparison. And it doesn't really come out that clearly in English, but it's an explicit way to set a comparison on one hand, on the other hand. And you're supposed to look at the two hands. That's what he's doing in the Greek. He says, on the one hand, men, on the one hand, the harvest is plentiful. The therismos is polus. But on the other hand, the workers are few. This is kind of a new thing in my life and ministry for me to see instances where this is actually the case that I can see. I mean, I believe what he's saying about his time, which he spoke. I could even believe that that's true in a way I don't know. There must be lots of people that are ripe for the harvest of the gospel is what he's talking about, but, but I don't know who they are. They're not the people that I end up talking to. Everybody knows better. Everybody's already figured it out and they don't know anything, but they have it all figured out and they know nothing, but they have it figured out. (laughs) Okay. You know, can I introduce you to the shepherd? No. Okay. (laughs) You know, all my life, this has been uh, something I've noticed with non-believers. Maybe God has brought you a lot of people that are ready to hear the gospel. Usually he brings me people that are not or who already have want to hear the word, but whatever. Recently in my life, I've become aware of many, many many opportunities to say Jesus loves you and died for your sins and rose from the dead and you can have eternal life if you simply trust in him. I have seen hundreds of people that are ready to hear that message collected together in climate-controlled, tax-funded spaces where you can say this. And we just have to have people willing to go do it. Providence was recently reopened to the gospel in the schools through the Good News Clubs. We just opened the fifth, the, the church of our Savior, the, the body of Christ just opened its fifth Good News Club in the, in the city of Norwich. And as Alan shared with us first hour, that's nine clubs, nine after-school clubs in the schools in Connecticut, and five of them in Norwich, little old Norwich, Connecticut. Man, the gospel must be going on there. And there are more schools, pro, there are probably more, more elementary schools that are open because the school's open. Providence is open. If you wanted to share Christ, listen to me. If you wanted to share Christ with children, now you got to deal with them. You got to know them. You got to speak to them. You got to get down and take a deep breath and have some energy and talk to them. 
And, and then do it fast because their attention's going and somebody else has to get up and talk. It's goldfish time. It's, it's, it's talking to little kids. But if you do it, if you wanted to do it, you could do it in Providence or in Norwich, probably in various environs around here. You could do it every day of the week for two hours a day if you wanted. You could be so thoroughly engaged and so busy with sharing Christ with children. You could because it's available. Am I saying you need to go do that? I'm not saying that to you. I don't know, right? I don't know what God's going to do with you. Am I saying you're wrong if you don't go do this? No, that's not the point. The point I'm making is that I see harvest. I see ripe opportunities for harvest, and (laughs) there are not enough people to do it, which is really neat. I mean, it's just like what Jesus says here. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Who is saying that? The Lord Jesus. And who is he? He's God in the flesh of man. Doesn't he have the ability to just go do this? Doesn't he have a big reaper? Can't he just grab the big scythe and whoosh, do it himself? He actually apparently could. But that's not how God decided to do it. Young man, if God wants you, if God wants to reach the Indians, he'll do it himself without any help from you. It's basically what the the churchman said to William Carey before he launched the modern missions movement. They had a little bit of a Calvinist tilt to their applicational theology, and they said that, well, it can't be you to go share Christ. Why, I don't remember. They had their reasons that apparently weren't God's reasons. What William Carey then did was he went to India and shared Christ. And God did it through him. The workers are few. And now, what do you do about that? We've got a problem, okay? We've got two problems. We've got the sheep without a shepherd and the compassion that motivates Jesus to speak. You've got the, the few workers and the plentiful opportunity, and that's a problem. And so then Jesus has a solution. Do you know what the solution is to the big problems in life? This is, this is life stuff. I know I'm taking three verses today, but it's worth it. Life stuff. What do you do with the big problems in life? Call out to the Lord. Save me, Lord Jesus, is the right answer when you're drowning, Peter, in Matthew 14. We're we're headed there. Help! That's the right answer. Lord Jesus, we're perishing. He didn't say, why are you bothering me, waking me up in the boat? He said, why are you doubting? Why are you afraid? They weren't wrong for asking him to help. They're wrong for their hearts being uh, controlled by fear. But he does hold us accountable for that. Now, what do you do with this? You, you talk to God. That's what you do. You, um, de-e-o-mai. De-o-mai, sorry, de-o-mai. Well, what's that? My Bible translate this word, translates this word beseech. That's one of those uh-ohs. Do y'all know what it means to beseech? I beseech thee, read some Lewis Carroll, you know what beseech means, but that's kind of a dated word. We could say request. Fill out a requisition form and request. It doesn't. The best word for this is ask. The second best word for this is petition, but if I say that, you think we're walking around with a clipboard. So it's ask. Beseech, ask, make a request. This word is the verb for the, the noun deasis, and it means... Um, 
it's the request you make to the Lord in um, Philippians 4, 7. Does everybody know Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Do you know Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Don't worry for anything, but in all things, with prayer and supplication, make your request. Let your request be made known to the Lord. That's that word to Asus. And the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. If you don't know that passage, you need to memorize that passage. You might need it this week. You might really need the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension to guard your heart and mind this week. But he says, ask. Ask the kurios of the theresmos. Ask the Lord of the harvest. And that's not, I don't think Jesus is talking about himself. He might be talking about himself. I mean, it doesn't say. But I think he's talking about his father. That he throw out, ekbalo, to throw, balo, out, ek. To throw, to send out, (laughs) ergos, workers. Ergonomics. Ergs is a measure of some sort of work or energy. Where we get this word work, workers, into the harvest that is his, into his harvest. All right. We started with a problem. The people are sheep without a shepherd, and I have a response, and I see that's Jesus. He sees that, and it causes a response in him of compassion for the crowds. Adopt his attitude or not, it's your choice, but it's clear what it's like to imitate Christ. Once you've done that, think about what is the problem. They're sheep without a shepherd. And so here's the problem. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Well, that's a second problem. We don't have enough people to deal with this. So what do we do? Well, let's pull up our bootstraps and go to work. That's not what he says. This is preparatory to sending them to the work. But it's not the first thing that you get up and go work. You ask God to send workers. It didn't say, God, send me in. Put me in, coach. John Fogarty, right? I'm ready to play. That's not, that's not what you do. You ask God to send people to do the work. Whoever it is. Because whose work is it? It's his harvest. Now, the question that I want you to think about as we kind of wind down today, think about the theology of this. God is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. He knows all the knowable. He knows that you don't have what it takes all the time to represent Jesus Christ because you're not thinking about him enough. Because you sometimes use your mouth in a way you shouldn't. I'm going to use the same mouth to praise God. I shouldn't do that. He knows all the wrinkles and, the, and the, the bad spots. He knows the salutary places too. He knows all about you. And yet he still wants to use you and me. But the way in, the entrance ramp to this ministry, as we're going to get into chapter 10 and sending the disciples out to this delegation through Jerusalem, through, through, through Judea, the way into the ministry is to ask the Father to send workers into the harvest because it's his harvest. Beloved, this is a protocol. God could have done it any way, but Jesus says this is the way to think about it. Now, I know you and I have read through Matthew 9, 30, 36 to 38, a gazillion times, but have you really thought about how that relates to what follows and how this is God Almighty who knows everything, how he's doing it. He is meeting us where we are and saying, you have responsibilities, you have opportunities, you need to think about them. I'm calling this the sovereign partnership the sovereign partnership. You're not sovereign. You're partnered with the sovereign. He's the one that is in charge of everything. 
but he calls you to make decisions, like talk to him. And he doesn't determine beforehand that you will talk to him regardless of whether you want to or not. I don't think that's how this works. But he is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he has so magnificently set up an arrangement where you, a personal being, can deal with him from your choices. That's his arrangement. I didn't make it up. But it's a partnership because the need is evident. Jesus sees the need. How will we solve it? Let's ask the Father to send workers to meet this need. That's God uses means. First, God is sovereign and omnipotent. Now, I don't adopt a facile interpretation of sovereignty or application of sovereignty that then means we don't have choices to make. I think that it's more complicated than that. I think God is so sovereign that he's made us able to make choices as his sovereign design. But he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But he uses willing participants in his work. Now, when Jesus says ask, it's in the imperative mood. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers. Think about this. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. Think about the idea. They may or may not ask. He tells them to. Then it's on them. Every command is like that. Command doesn't make it happen. Command tells me I'm responsible for it to happen. I've got to do it. See, it's a partnership. Every command is an invitation to partnership. Remember that. If your parents tell you what they want, young people, if they give you an instruction, a command, they're inviting you to make choices. You will choose one or the other regarding the command, and you will partner with them or not. But God is sovereign, he's omnipotent, and he chooses willing participants in his work. Are you one of those? Have you adopted the attitude of Jesus toward the lost? Do you want to see the sheep have a shepherd? Would you like to make that introduction? I do. I want to. Don't tell people so much, I want you to meet my pastor, with a little lowercase p. Introduce people to the great shepherd and guardian of our souls. (laughs) I want you to meet my pastor with a capital P, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I can be of service in making that arrangement, I am with you. I'm 100%. I'll come alongside you and we'll tell them together. Or I'll or talk to him to me. I'll talk to him about Jesus. But the point is not, obviously, that they would talk to your pastor in your local church, that they talk to the, the real guardian of our souls. Second, the request that Jesus asks them to make is for workers. Notice he doesn't say pray for the people. Although, this is a prayer for the people. It's a prayer for workers to talk to the people because we know what they need. They need the message. They need the word of God. It's clear from God's word from beginning to end. That's what people need. You see it? I love dig, digging down into something like this. Father, send workers. So my question to you, to wake some of you up, does working in the harvest of this gospel ministry contradict from the concept of grace? Does it contradict grace to say we need workers? Because for by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Does this mean that Jesus is contradicting grace by saying we need human workers in the gospel ministry? Have you figured this one out? I know a lot of Christians that haven't. On the one hand, you've got people that don't understand that faith is not a work, and so believing in Christ is of nothing to do with your work or effort. It's what Jesus did. You're trusting in that. A lot of people think that they're, they're working to get saved, and that's a horrible mis- misapprehension. No, no, no. You can't work up your salvation. Jesus did it for you on the cross. But then, then there's the next people that get that, sometimes fall off the balance beam on the other side, and say because of our, our grace through faith salvation, it's not of our works. 
So they think that we're not supposed to be doing any work. Well, see, that's what I might conclude if I was merely a theologian. If I was just reasoning with a few ideas from the Bible and coming up with ways they fit together, I might conclude that. But if you expand the data set to what the Bible teaches, in other words, if you read the Bible, the whole New Testament is written to make us workmen that need not be ashamed because we rightly handle the word of truth. Of course you're called to work. Well, who's going to go? Whoever it is, they're going to work. That's why we don't do it. We don't because we don't want to work. We have matured enough to appreciate the work. We haven't seen that the work is fun. What do I tell the kids? Life is work and work is fun, so life is fun. Da, da, da. Life is work, work is fun, life is fun. Can you do that simple algebra? I can't get there. I just can't, can't do it. But the work that you're called to do is where all the joy is. And it's a blessing to be able to do it. And by the way, the way you will do the work that pleases God, whatever the harvest work you get to do, is in the power, the provision of God the Holy Spirit as you abide in Christ. It is God truly working through you. He'll even say as much when he says, don't worry about what you're going to say. When they, when they ask you to give an account, Jesus in, in Matthew 10, don't worry about what you're going to say. In the, in the time you need to say it, the Holy Spirit will help you say what you need to say. That's God working through you. Do you want to be used by God is really what the challenge to this is. And it doesn't contradict the grace of God. Jesus, fourth, Jesus' compassion shows God's love for the people. Do you see it? Have you adopted that love for the people? And do you know where the Bible teaches us? The book of Jonah. The most unlovable people to the people in Judah would be, or the, or the northern kingdom, would be the Ninevites. Because that's the capital of Assyria. And Assyrians, I think I compare it to the Comanches of the plains, the Comanche Empire of the plains uh, down, in, um, down in the southwest in the 1830s. These were a vigorous, horrible people if you, felt, if you, if you were captured by them. They, would, they had torture you to death games they would play. They were, they were really nasty, nasty people. And the Syrians were like that um, in, in many ways. But Jonah is sent to preach the gospel, as it were, to preach repentance to the Assyrians. And he doesn't want to go. And the point of the, the story, as you read it, when it ends on a question, is do you understand how God and Jonah are different? Have you adopted God's attitude toward the lost or, to, or, or Jonah's? And that's one example, a whole book written for that purpose. That's the, pur- the purpose of Jonah is not for us to think about the fish. But it does capture our imaginations as children. Puppet shows and so forth. Where else does this happen? The lost things in Luke 15. Three parables saying the same thing. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Or as you call it, the prodigal son. They're all saying the same thing. Heaven rejoices when the sinners come to God through Christ. Heaven rejoices. But the most telling one is the prodigal son because it's two brothers, one brother representing the sinners, the tax collectors of sinners in Israel. The good boy, the good brother representing the religious crowd that hated him. He didn't rejoice when his brother came home. That's the whole point. He doesn't think like his father. The father and the prodigal son is God the father. And he wants his people to come to him. He wants this. It's his desire. He's not willing that any should perish. God has compassion for the people. What else shows God's love for the people? Well, Romans 5.18 tells us, excuse me, Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love toward us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Fifth, do you, is the point I want you to get to, have God's attitude toward the people? 
Do you think like God thinks about the lost? Well, if God wanted, the passage says, the protocol way God's going to do it is that you ask God to send workers. And that's the on-ramp to him sending you out to be a worker. Verses, or chapter 10. Do you have God's attitude about these people? When he says his harvest, it's always God's harvest. This is what I've been emphasizing in uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Apollos, I mean, I, I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. This ministry is never ours. It's never about our glory. It's never about our name. It's never about anything but him. That's why we put pointy structures on our buildings that need to be fixed. <laughs> We're pointing and everything we do to him, it's not about us. It's about him, and it's always God's harvest. Now again, couldn't God just do the Good News Club thing without me being involved? Yes, and guess what? If you're not involved, he is. But think about it. If, if Maybe God wants you to be part of this and benefit yourself from this joy. Maybe he wants you to participate. I know one thing for sure. He doesn't want you to be separate from the world and the lost to the extent that you can't speak to it. Of course, you don't join the wicked practices of Satan's uh, cosmic system and live lifestyles of sin and wickedness like the world around you. Of course, you don't join them in that, but you must stay engaged enough to be able to speak to them. And that's the ministry of our Savior. Now, this is the big question in verse, uh, number, number seven. Does God want this harvest? Does God want the harvest? Is full, ready to be harvested? Does he want the people, does he want the harvest? What's he, why is Jesus even talking? You know what he's doing? He's generating, he's inducing in us the desire that the Father has. He's bringing us into the mission with him and getting the attitude that he has towards. See how that does that? It's, it's designed. Of course the Father wants the harvest, but he's going to use means. He's going to use us to do it. That's what I'm talking about, the sovereign partnership. He's going to use you. Or is he? Is he going to use you? Well, if you pray with me, when we pray together, we pray for the work, he's using you there because we're praying. I know that at least then you're part of it. How is he using you in this effort? This is why this organization, this little cell of believers exists. This is our reason for existence. I learned to call it raison d'etre. Our reason to be is because we have the most wonderful thing in the world. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're surrounded by people that desperately need it. A lot of times people think they have it and don't. Does God want this? And do you want what God wants? Do you want God to reap the harvest? The honest truth is, since there is no other honest or, or truth besides the honest one, the truth about me and you is sometimes we don't care about it. How do you get into a, a mindset where you don't care if God gets his harvest? How does that happen? How has the world arranged our lives? How has Satan worked his way in there where it's not even on our minds? How does my mind leave the things of God and what he's actually doing with us to something else? Think about the ways. That's some Hebrews 12 stuff. You need to let the encumbrance aside. Whatever is entangling you, you need to get rid of it. One of the things that happens to our mindset is we go to a different place in our mind. We completely disconnect from life and from reality in various ways that we do it. Think about it. And I'm not saying you can't play, you can't have fun, you can't have entertainment. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's easy to lose track of what you're here for 
and waste your life. That's the world you live in. That's the worldly church that we're, we're seeing. But if you adopt Christ's attitude here, you'll want the same thing that he wants. And that's a big part of leadership is wanting the mission. You, see, you don't want workers under you in a mission that don't want the mission. Uh, like an administration with a president that wants something and then the people under him don't want it and then it's, it never happens. I mean, I've never seen that. Right? That's not a problem we see all the time. Your organization has to have subordinates that want to see it happen. And that's what he's inducing in us. I want to see this too. Do you want your life to matter in what God is actually doing? That's, that's the challenge. By virtue of how Jesus, uh, how Matthew structures the, the miracles and the messages, we're on-ramping to the great discipleship discourse of chapter 10. This is the beginning of discipleship service, to adopt the attitude of God. To adopt the attitude of God. So there I am outside raking leaves as we close. Just think about raking leaves in the fall time. Oh, that the boys would stay, would keep that desire to rake leaves after they're eight or nine years old. So I heard that with those holy ums. Oh, some of you are like, yeah. You know, when they're little, they love it. They get a rake and they can't even swing it. They can't even rake yet, but they want to rake. And they're out there making a mess and not getting a lot of raking done. There I am out there raking leaves. A little guy comes up, pick your, your pick. Samuel, Isaiah, Elijah, Nathan, Benjamin, Thomas. Pick one of them. At, the, at that age when they still wanted to. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know you guys always want to rake. But, but I'm out there and, and they come up beside me and yeah, you guys are always a permanent sermon illustration. Just have, It'll be forever until I'm done preaching. So um, hopefully it's for the good. So, so I'm out there raking, and they want the rake. He's seven. He can't really do anything with that. And so I, please, please, let me, let me have a turn. Okay, you can have a turn. And then I stand back and I watch. We're not getting anything done here. Oh, this is, this is wearying. But it's fun. I mean, I'm having fun, but we're not getting the job done. We're doing something besides the job. Here's what happens as he grows. He grows a little bit, gets a little muscle. 10, 11. Grab that. Dad, can I use the rake? Yes, you can. I'll get another rake. We can really do stuff together. But it's my work. It's what I've got to do, whether he helps me or not. It's my job. And this is what God is inviting you to do. He's got an enterprise. He's got something he is doing. And if we know anything from the ministry of the Lord Jesus on his earthly sojourn, it's that he is inviting us to participate with him in what he's doing. Now, it's never my job. It's not the little kid takes over. Okay, I'm going to sweep all, I'm going to do this all myself. No, you're not. If anything's going to get done, it's going to be done because we work together. And you're going to have to grow some maturity to actually be effective in this. Mostly it's going to be me. But... Isn't it amazing that the creator of the universe is inviting you through these words? Now, you can turn the Bible, close, you can close it, you can turn it off. <laughs> we pulled it up, now we turn it off. You can turn off this codex and never think about that and never touch these things. But what the word of God is going to do with you, if you really meditate on verses 36 through 38, you're going to say, I want to be part of what my father is doing. Beloved, the Bible is written to equip you to do that. It doesn't mean you preach, but if you can and if you should, then it will mean you preach. It doesn't mean you give money, but if you can and you will, and we all will, you give money. It doesn't mean all the things that it might mean. 
It doesn't mean any one of these things. It means all of them. It means turning wrenches back to Papua New Guinea on the, on the, the airplanes to make them go resupply Wes and Penny. That's, that's part of this. How do you participate? Father, we thank you for the challenge of discipleship, for the riches of the gospel ministry you've entrusted to us, for the wisdom you've given us today to avail ourselves of the teaching of your son through the pen of the apostle Matthew. Thank you for our great shepherd and guardian of the flock who realigns our priorities, who resets us onto the path of serving you, of walking with you, of pleasing you. Father, let us never lose that perspective that by your grace we're saved, by your grace we live, by your grace we serve, and it is grace, faith works that we perform in obedience to you. Help us adopt your attitude, your mission, your perspective as Jesus is teaching his disciples here. And Father, let us see the effects. Let us test the idea that the greatest joy comes from the hardest service, from the deepest commitment. Let us enjoy the maturity in your son to carry these things off. And Father, if there's anyone in the hearing my voice today that doesn't know Jesus as Savior, let these gospel words be very clear on their hearts that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. What you must do with Christ is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Our Father, thank you for our Savior in his name. We all said, amen.